Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. It is good to be with you all uh, again. You probably don't remember that time so long ago. Uh, you were actually, this first time I've been in this building uh, here. This was under construction last time I was here. We met somewhere else, wherever that was, uh, years and years ago. So it's great to be back with you. Uh, here, uh, as Bob mentioned, I've um, been involved in church planting now for an uh, awful long time, it uh, seems like. Uh, my wife and I grew up in the state of Michigan, uh, and then 35-some years ago, God called us to Chicago, where we continue to, to live and minister, been involved in planting churches uh, there in uh, Chicago, then we got involved in providing leadership for the Midwest region, then uh, for the denomination uh, covering um, um, North America, and now kind of settled back to the to the Midwest region uh, again. So uh, in all of that, we've just been involved in church plants uh, left and right. Um, one of the stories that my wife and I enjoy that kind of illustrates just the focus, I guess, on church planting these years is that uh, when my daughter was a teenager, we were driving near our home, and she pointed to a building, and she said, so... Uh, what is that building? I said, honey, what are you talking about? I said, that's, that's a church. I said, oh, what do they use it for? And it finally dawned on my wife and I that this kid had grown up in America had never been in a church building uh, before. All she had ever known were gymnasiums and community centers and storefronts and things of that nature. And so she said, well, just don't Christians just gather wherever they can? I said, well, yeah, but... Uh, you know, eventually, they like to get a place like this uh, here uh, kind of thing. Well, she eventually went to Wheaton College and has had her fill of institutional Christianity and that kind of thing now. But the point of the matter is, this has just kind of been our lives. It's our passion uh, to see new congregations started. And I'm hoping after uh, the service today during this pizza lunch thing that to tell you a little bit more what's going on. And from my point of view, I feel like God has just given us the best job in the whole world. Uh, because we've been able to, if for no other reason, we have a front row seat to seeing Jesus do what he said he would do so long ago when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself can't stop me from doing it. And he's doing that. And he's doing it around the world. He's doing it across our nation. He's doing it in all sorts of different contexts, from inner cities to campus communities to rural centers to whatever you name it. He is building his church. And there are just so many great stories to tell of lives being impacted with the gospel, families being restored, communities being impacted with the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I wanted to focus on just really one verse this morning for you, which is found in Philippians 1.27, which I think kind of capsulizes all of this that I'm trying to share with you uh, this morning. It's a verse that uh, has emerged. It's kind of the centerpiece of our church planting ministry. We've uh, used it for the Midwest region now for 25 years, and for 20 years, it has uh, become the denominational uh, verse. Uh, one that we have set before our denomination as a whole, to say this is what we want to see characterize our individual churches, our presbyteries, our denomination, the church of Jesus Christ. It's our denominational verse. So I figured at a minimum, you all at least know that uh, anyway. 
So that's why we're going to look at this one verse and then in the context of 21 through 30. So let me read first of all verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Starting with verse 21 then, to put it in context. Paul says, for me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here ends the reading of God's word. Before we look at this verse in its context, let's bow before the author in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do bow before your awesome and glorious majesty. We worship you in the name of your Son, Jesus, giving you the thanks and praise that you deserve. But it is also our desire and our need this morning to hear you speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to compose our hearts and minds before you now, and that you would speak to us very clearly, clearly, clearly. because, well, Lord, whenever you speak, things happen. Whenever you speak, worlds come into existence. Whenever you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. So speak to us this morning, we pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This verse, just one verse, is so much in it. Loved, I mean, Bob says only got like an hour and a half or so, so I'm going to just try to pull this to a, a condensed version. Uh, of things here. Just get right to the point. You see in this verse, first of all, that the beginning and the end of it, like a sandwich effect, is focused on the gospel. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel so we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. One thing that we take from this verse is that it's all about the gospel. Everything is about the gospel. 
This is the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the amazing reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the news that Paul summarizes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to all sorts of folks. This is the good news of the gospel. That when God saw a world in all of its mess, when God saw the world in all of its pain, its sorrow, its brokenness, and all the things that we read about all the time, he, his, what was his response? He didn't send a doctor. He didn't send a teacher. He didn't send a military leader. He didn't send a politician, thank heavens. He sent us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He went right to the heart of the matter. He went to the source of the problem. He sent us his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And it's at the cross that we see what our sin really does deserve. It's at the cross that we see how much God really does love us, how much we must mean to him if he would go to those lengths to redeem us for himself, to bring us back to him. And it's at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus that we see the new life that is offered to us through Jesus. This is the gospel. It is the centerpiece of everything. And that it's, but it's more than just information that we're supposed to hear and respond to. The thing that we see so often in Scripture is that it's described not just as good news, but it is described as the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Start reading your way through 1 Corinthians, and you'll see that power and gospel are linked over and over again. It is the power of God unto salvation. Now, in our day and age, and throughout history, really, you've, people talk about power in all sorts of different ways. And there's all sorts of different sources of power. In the business world, and this sort of thing, people say money is power. In the scientific world, it's all about nuclear power. In the world of government and that sort of thing, it's all about getting for yourself political power. In this day and age, we're told that information is power. There's all sorts of power. There, in my day and age, we, we, it was power to the people. You know, It was the black power movement. It was on and on that you can go. This concept of power is so important as people seek for influence, to, to affect change, to bring good in the world, or seek justice, or whatever it might be. And these sources of power are good in and of themselves, but they also can be used for great evil at the same time. I would propose to you that there is no greater source of power in the universe, nothing that is more potent than the power of the gospel, because nothing else in this world, nothing else in the universe has the capacity to save and change a human soul. 
You can educate it. You can medicate it. You can do any number of things to it, but you cannot change or save a human soul apart from the power of the gospel. It is the way hope is found. It is where life is found. It is where change is found. And we can see this through the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of history, or probably our own personal testimonies. Just take, for example, Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Here's this man who is a corrupt businessman, a corrupt government official, and he's a traitor to his own people. He's a Jew who's using the power of Rome to collect their taxes, and the Romans tell him, and you can also use our military power to collect whatever you want to live on. So he's a parasite off his own people, hated by the Jews, and he is taking money from them not only for Roman taxes, but for his own well-being and to live affluently. He is a selfish, corrupt businessman until he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, his life is changed. He is set free. And he says, I will restore to everyone that I have taken money from fourfold. And I will begin to give my money to the poor. If we're going to begin to see real change in our society, business world, government world, where's it going to come from? It will come through the power of the gospel. Take the Gerasene demoniac. This man who is in the grips of the forces of darkness, of, of the powers of evil uh, in his case. And he's running around wreaking havoc everywhere he goes. Nobody can control him, this sort of thing. He is wretched. He is miserable. He is feared until he meets Jesus. And when he does, Jesus sets him free. He gives him life. He changes him, and he goes back to his family and his friends to tell others the good things that Jesus has done. If we're going to see people set free from all the different powers of evil that afflict us, that addict us, that torment us, whatever it might be, it's only going to come through the power of the gospel. Think about Paul himself, a religious zealot, a moralist, a legalist, he persecutes the church even unto death. He thinks he's doing right, but he's doing wrong. A religious, religious zealot who's doing all the wrong things that God wants until he meets Jesus. And Jesus sets him free from his religion, from his zeal, from all he sees. He finds life in Jesus and he becomes the greatest missionary in the history of of the world to proclaim the good news. You think about others in history. Think of uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, considered the father of Catholicism, the father of Protestantism, both. You know, he's just a, such a pillar of the church. But where did it all start? This is a guy who was living life horribly, trying to find love in all the wrong places through orgies and alcohol, you name it, he was trying to find the full and the good life and he was coming up empty all the time until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he was set free. His life was changed. And he's the one who gives us the phrase now that our hearts are restless until they find their rest. 
in me. People are going to find hope and peace and joy for their souls in life. It comes through the power of the gospel. Think about John Newton. Oh my goodness. One of the most evil men that you can think of in the slave trade, bringing slaves to the new world by hundreds and thousands, half of whom would die in the wretched conditions of his slave ships. And he didn't care. As long as he got his money at the other end, he'd go back to Africa and bring more slaves here. Just a wretched and cruel man until he meets Jesus. And Jesus sets him free. Jesus changes his life. He becomes a beloved pastor in England and he gives us what might be the greatest hymn that's ever been written. Amazing grace. How great the sound that would save a wretch like me. This is the gospel, my friends. It's the power of the gospel and the only reason I am here before you today it's because years ago, God reached down into the muck and to the mire of my own life, and he rescued me, and he set me free. He made me his child. He made me his own, and that's why I stand before you today. We can look at biblical testimony. We can look at historical testimony. We can look at our personal testimony. This is the power of the gospel. This is what Paul is setting before the Philippians, and I hope that there's no one here today who will leave without you calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved, for you to meet Jesus where you are at, and for you to experience the grace and the power of the gospel in your own life. And then once we have, God gives this amazing power to us. Having experienced this grace, he then comes and says, okay, here it is. This is the most potent force in the universe. Greater than your nuclear power, greater than your money, greater than the tesseract if you want to, or whatever else. It's the most potent power. It's yours. Now you take it and you use it for good. I don't have a plan B here. This gospel is going to come through you, my people, as you experience it, and as you extend it to a world that needs it so very desperately. And that's why we begin to get a hint of what he also says here, then only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel. Only. That's a powerful world. This is, this is your focus. This is your priority. This is your agenda as a Christian, as the people of God. This is what I want you to be all about, to the Philippians, to new life, to whatever. Conduct yourself now in a manner worthy of this gospel that saves and changes human souls. Now, what does that mean? to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. We can explore it in so many different ways. And at a minimum, it means that we begin to treat other people with the same grace that we have been treated. That we begin to love others with the same love that we have been loved. And when you do that in your marriage, when you do that in your home, when you do that in the workplace, when you do that at school, when you do that in your neighborhood, you bring the potent force of the gospel to play. 
Hardly anything can change lives and relationships more than people living out the gospel in the context of their relationships. Extending to people the same grace. Loving people with the same love which we have been loved. And that takes us even further into this text. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, we might find a part of our answer up in verse 21 where this started. Where Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If it's to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's what I'm all about. I'd much rather go be with Jesus. But to remain here in this kind of a world with these kinds of needs, this is what's necessary. So this is what I'm all about. This is what I'm committed to. And I want to see this in your lives as well. You see, one thing you look, when you look at Paul in the New Testament, one thing that really stands out as you read his epistles, the read the book of Acts, whatever, is that Paul never got over the wonder and the joy of his salvation. He couldn't get over it. You look at, you read through the book of Acts and he gets three different opportunities to tell his story and he takes the full, you read it three times, like, okay, I've already been there, I've done that. We're doing it again, we're doing it again. Why? Because Paul couldn't get past it. This is his story of what God did to save and change his soul and to set him on a new life. And he's spending his whole life in ministry and service now to Jesus. For me to live is, is Christ, to die is gain. You look at Ephesians chapter 1, and, and Paul just kind of goes berserko, you know, with this salvation that he's experienced in Jesus. And he breaks every rule of Greek grammar. I mean, he fails Greek 101. Uh, in this, because for verse after verse after verse, we have punctuations put in there, but he just ignores it all. No periods, no colons, no semicolons, no commas or anything. He just goes crazy because he says, I can't believe that God set me apart from the foundations of the world before I was even born, that God came into this world and he suffered and died for me, that he justified me by his grace, that he has redeemed me by the blood of Jesus, that he has sealed me with the Holy Spirit, all of which he's done from the foundation of time. I can't believe that this has happened to me. That's the wonder. That's the joy. And I ask you, are you experiencing with this gospel that we're laying out here this morning, do you have the wonder and the joy of your salvation? Or has it grone stale for you? Where you say, yeah, yeah, I, I know. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I accepted Jesus years ago. That's kind of old news, whatever. It's never old news for Paul. He grew in that. It became more and more credible, more and more wonderful to him. It became the foundation, the generating source of his whole life. I would pray as for you, not only would you come to know Christ, but that you would also grow in having the wonder and joy of your salvation in Christ. And that you would be able to then say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to spend my whole life in faithful, fruitful service to the one who has redeemed me. See, unless you truly understand the gospel, and been saved and changed, that kind of a statement makes no sense. It just sounds radical. You, you feel like a religious nut. It feels foolish to even say it. But if you've understood the gospel, experienced it, the depths of its grace, the wonder of God's love in your life, and then it's the only thing you can do. 
It makes sense for us to then say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. So what does that look like? Well, people who've experienced the grace of the gospel, who have the wonder and joy of their salvation, Paul says, well, this is what I want to see it look like. I want to see you striving side by side for the faith of this gospel. That's what I want to see. It's not just that we individually have experienced this grace and the wonder and joy of it. But he says, I want to see you guys coming together. I want to see the gospel with its energizing and unifying effect in your life. As you come together under the banner of Jesus, in the context of his grace, and the wonders of his love, and you're going to find ways to combine your time and your energy and your resources for the work of the gospel because there is nothing greater in this world to do. I don't want to just see individual efforts. I want to see collaborative effort. I want to see unite. This is what we want to see happen in our local churches. This is what we want to see happen in our presbyteries like central Indiana. This is what we want to see happen in our denomination in the church of Jesus Christ because that's when the gospel goes forth with power. And that's what Paul's trying to get across to these Philippians. You see, we can begin to understand this a little bit when we understand the nature of the community of Philippi. See, Philippi was a very unique community. It was not a... a, uh, a Jewish town at all, because when Paul shows up in Philippi, he can't find hardly any Jews at all. Uh, There's no synagogue or anything else. It's not a Greek town, even though it's named for Philip, uh, the, the, the Greek leader. It's not really a Greek town anymore, because it's now a Roman town. And it's not just a Roman town, it is a Roman military community, a Roman retirement military community. And that's because years earlier, not all that many years earlier, on the plains of Philippi, they had had one of the great climactic battles of history, where the forces of Rome under General Octavian came, and they set up shop in Philippi, and the forces of Anthony and Cleopatra came across from Egypt, and they fought one of the great climactic battles on the plains of Philippi. And of course, you know, the Romans beat them. Cleopatra and Anthony and this sort of thing. Elizabeth Taylor goes back to Egypt and the snake bites her and the whole sort of thing. So that's, that's all the history that's surrounding uh, this story at this point. So you've got Philippi that is now this Roman military community. And in this, as Paul is writing them, the, the commentators would tell us that he uses all through this book and in this verse phrases and terminology Uh, that have Roman military implications. And then in particular in this, what he's referring to by implication is the Roman military strategy that allowed them to conquer the whole known world at that point. Uh, And this is what uh, is now come to be called the Roman phalanx, the Roman turtle. And if you've watched the movie Gladiator, you you got some idea uh, of what we're talking about. Because you see, the way they used to have battles uh, in the old days thousands of years ago, is that you would line up all your guys on this side of the valley, and you would line up all your people on this side of the valley, and you'd run into the middle of the valley, and whoever had the mostest and the biggest and the baddest people would would win, you see. But a new strategy had been invented under uh, Alexander the Great, 
and he had used this strategy uh, to conquer the known world. Julius Caesar took this strategy, and he developed it, he refined it, and used it in the Romans, and it became the strategy that the Romans used that allowed them to conquer the whole known world at that point in time as well. So what would happen is that the Goths and Visigoths, you know, whoever the bad guys were, you know, we'll let you guys be the Goths and Visigoths this morning, okay? So you guys line up on your side of the valley, and you guys get to be the Romans uh, today, and you line up on your side of the valley, and everybody kind of gets ready for the big fight, and you guys are getting ready to charge, and your archers are getting ready to shoot, and this sort of thing, and you guys, though, instead of starting across the valley, you go into like a marching band routine. And the drums are beating and the horns blow a little bit. And you're kind of crisscrossing each other. And pretty soon, you know, you're just watching this kind of figure. And like, what are they smoking, you know, kind of thing. So they're, they're doing this crisscross thing. And as you see that they pretty much sta- bu- uh, march themselves into these boxes of men, hundreds wide, hundreds deep, staggered all across their side uh, of the valley. And then the horns blow and these shields come up, they come out all the way around, and right over top, they're all custom designed so they link together, so you've got this human tank. And then this next thing, the horns blow, and these long 20-foot pikes come out from little holes carved in, in the shields, and then the Romans start to march. They don't charge, they just start marching across the valley. Here they come, chung, 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 and here they come. In the meantime, you guys are watching this show, really intrigued, but then you do what you've always done before, is that you charge, okay? You start running across the valley, screaming and yelling, uh, this sort of thing. Your archers begin to shoot their arrows over into the, to the Romans, and of course the arrows are doing no damage whatsoever. They're just bouncing off the, those Roman phalanxes uh, here. And the Romans keep coming, and pretty soon, you know, the forces mix, and the Romans haven't done a thing. They just keep marching in, and the forces are mixed, and you guys are hacking with your, your swords and your axes and all this kind of stuff, uh, doing virtually no damage whatsoever, and then the Roman archers start to shoot. And they start wiping you out, because your shields are down so that you can fight. The Romans still have their shields up, so they're starting to wipe out all sorts of people. Then the archers stop. And when the archers stop, that's the signal to the Romans. They drop their shields and they come out fighting. And if you're a Goth or a Visigoth or something like that, all of a sudden you realize no matter where you are on the battlefield, you're surrounded by Romans. They're coming at you from every different angle. They've separated your army into lots of little pieces now because of their boxes that are now staggered all over the valley. And so they're coming at you from every angle and they wipe you out. And it got to the point, we're told, by historians that when the Romans, you know, as they marched through Gaul, for example, uh, that when they were doing this, uh, they'd go into their marching band routine, march themselves into their boxes. The Gauls and this sort of thing would see what was going on. They'd throw down their weapons and run away without even fighting because they said, okay, that's what everybody's talking about. Can't beat it. We're out of here kind of thing. And they'd win battles without even a fight. The point of a Roman phalanx is what? Complete and utter discipline, absolute unity, that you fight together as a unit, where you literally strive side by side in the battle. You literally have each other's back. And so if you're marching across the valley, and you're a chunk of these men, a kind of thing, and you're marching across, and you see all these 
hairy, ugly people, long, you know, painted in blue, right? No offense, running across the valley at you, and they engage in, in the fight with you. If you got scared and started to fight on your own, you could jeopardize that whole flank of the army and even the battle itself. So everybody had to fight in unison. Everybody had to function together as a large unit. And you see the vision that Paul is trying to give the Philippian church. You guys are few. There's not a lot of you. But I want you to think about the Roman military strategy and what God can do with that. If you guys not only are conducting yourself in a manner worthy of this gospel, the most potent, powerful force in the universe, and that you have experienced this grace and have the wonder and joy, I want to see you coming together in a united sort of way, your time and your energy and your resources, and that you sync up with one another. You collaborate, you cooperate with one another, and you fight together as a church as a presbytery, as a PCA, as the Church of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you can't be beaten. I don't care how many of the enemy there are. I don't care how powerful you think they are. With me as your leader, operating together under the banner of, the, of, of, of Christ, in the power of the gospel, you can't be beaten. That's why he goes on to say, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and no way frightened by your opposition. See, the, the challenge of the mission field is not the mission field. The challenge of mission and the mission field are Christians being willing to work together, being willing to cooperate combine their time and energy and resources together to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Everywhere I go in this country, people try to convince me that it's the toughest place to plant churches. Okay, it doesn't matter where. If it's New England, it's like hardened and it's burned over and nobody believes and it's really liberal and you can't plant churches there. Or if you go out to California, it's so ultimately liberal and this sort of thing, no values, no morals, no nothing, you can't plant churches in California. You see, you, you can't plant churches in the South because they all think they're saved and they're not saved, so you got to get them unsaved before you get them saved, you know, kind of thing, because they're so, so buried in the gospel. Or, or Mormon Utah, which actually has a case. It's a tough place uh, to, to plant churches uh, there. But the point of the matter is, it, it isn't the mission field that matters. It's whether people excited about Jesus having experienced his grace, will strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. To you at New Life, this is your calling. This is your identity. This is your primary agenda. This is how your time and energy and resources are ultimately supposed to be channeled. And we live in a state, in a region in a, in a country, in a world that needs the gospel so much. It needs us uniting together to this end. And so my prayer for you as a body of believers, as it has been for you and so many others for years and years, that you yourselves will conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that when God looks at you and sees you, he will see that you are of one heart, that you are of one mind, striving side by side 
for the faith of the gospel. A people who are on fire with the joy of their salvation, where the love of Christ is just blossoming and growing in your lives. May this be what characterizes you as the people of God in this time and place. Let's pray. pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, for the gospel, for life, freedom, for being yours. And I pray, O oh Lord, for this body of believers that already has a legacy of striving side by side for the gospel, of seeing new churches started, of contributing to the work of the kingdom. And I pray that they would be able to build on that as they grow in the wonder and joy of their own salvation. And that, Lord, they will be a people who here in this place with the other churches in Muncie, with the churches of central Indiana and beyond, that they will strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and they will, under your lordship, be a force to be reckoned with. Lord, I commit them into your hands. I pray for your continued work of grace in their lives and pray that the things we've talked about this morning from this text will increasingly characterize them as a body of believers. And I commit them to you in Jesus' name.